0: We are one month after they were kind of introduced. We formally have the proper introduction of the Maquis into the series. I'm not going to tell you what everyone already knows, but what I do find funny is the Maquis were deliberately developed for Voyager, and then Voyager didn't do anything with it. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Michael Piller, I don't actually remember if I mentioned this over my Voyager stuff. Um, Michael Pillar actually fought for the idea that the Maquis wouldn't switch into uniform, at least not early on, and he lost that fight. I would have loved to have, like, have a video recording or to, like, be able to time travel and see what was going on in the argument because I personally cannot think of any arguments for why the Maquis shouldn't, like, like, shouldn't stay out of uniform, at least at the beginning. By the end of Caretaker, the Maquis crew members were in uniform. And that always kind of bothered me a little bit. (sighs) I bring this up because the Maquis, unlike some other aspects of DS9, basically had no real plan in mind. And this, in many ways, leads to their detriment, in my opinion. The Maquis are introduced, again, they were technically brought up over in... um, Journey's End, which in real time perspective came out one month before this episode, um, March instead of April, and then in April we have this episode, which ba boom the Maquis, and the Maquis were like, all right, we need to introduce this faction so that we can then showcase what's going in dspace Space Nine, or going into Voyager, but they were never really intended to do much. Now the problem is the Maquis are a very complicated topic. You could probably do an entire show just on the mach The dilemma alone is wonderful and multifaceted. And I'll discuss that in a minute. But instead, they were introduced, and then they were kind of forgotten, and then they did a couple things with them, and then they were kind of forgotten, and then it's like, uh, uh, then uh, you know, future stuff happened. I'm not going to spoil all of it, but my point being, as much as DS9 did have some good mach episodes, including this one, I would say, it was it always felt like that kind of, we don't want this story thread, but it's over here, so we got to do something with it, kind of a feeling, right? And I feel that's really, to the detriment of a show, of the franchise, actually, as a whole, if I could be so bold. But I I suppose I I digress. The Maquis, named, of course, after the French Resistance Unit back in World War II, um, is a paramilitary group that violent accounts intended to become literally a separate nation from the pre-existing ones. Now, that by itself is already a very complicated topic, because the nature of what happened to the DMZ is actually such a goddamn mess, I can't even fully talk about it yet. In fact, I have decided I will not talk about it at length until next episode when it's really brought up. By the way, fun little fact for those of you who haven't been following me for a while, I generally don't decide whether or not I'm going to do a two-parter in one episode or two until I'm there. And I decided I had enough to talk about just in this first part to go ahead and split them up. It's probably the one thing that might make TNG and DS9 take a little bit different time, because they have very close to each other's number of episodes. I think it's like one or two uh, off in the total count of how many episodes are in TNG and DS9 total. So... One will probably end before the other because of the two-parter problem, if nothing else. But I look at the Maquis, and one of the biggest problems I have with them is defining them. Like, paramilitary groups certainly works, but one of the words that tends to be bandied about is the word terrorist. Now, when this show came out, that word wasn't quite as tainted as it has become in real-life history since then. And that is a little bit unfortunate because it's hard to use that word as it is intended. Unfortunately, the word terrorist for some years uh, can and has been used simply to refer to any group, organization, or individual that does not agree with your current regime, which is obviously uh, wrong. But I decided to go up to look up the actual official definition of terrorism. And the official definition of terrorism is a specific and deliberate intent to use terror with the purpose of coercing someone. That's terrorism. And I have to admit, while that obviously leaves some room for some gray, I'm not not—I'm still not sure if it applies when it comes to the Maquis. Now, I imagine I'll get lots of different perspectives and reactions to that. What's funny is that absolutely applies to the Cardassians. I mean, I hate to spoil episode two here, but as we will find out, there are plenty of groups of the Cardassians within the DMZ who are basically being funded, supplied, and supported by the Cardassian military in order to apply a terror campaign against the uh, against the human and well against the Federation colonists within the area, in order to coerce them to leave or die, you know, whichever. That is pretty definitively cut and dry, black and white terrorism. What the the Maquis are doing in return, that's a little bit more debatable, because they're not really trying to coerce so much as defend. And you can see how this kind of enters in gray area. I'd love to debate this with you guys. Obviously, that can't happen, because these are pre-recorded. But I do look forward to being blasted on the internet for my opinions, as usual. But no, I, I'm looking forward to hearing your guys' comments on this, because we could talk about the Maquis for a while. I'm going to leave a lot of the specifics about that for next time. But we had to talk about the Maquis at least a little bit. Um, I want to mention one other thing really quick, though. It's funny to me that Deep Space Nine treats the continuity of Voyager more seriously than Voyager does. There's so in this episode, Cisco has a throwaway line about how ships have been gone missing in the Badlands recently. Now that is a deliberate reference to the idea. That by this point in time, the caretaker has already started grabbing people from the Badlands in his search for a for a pre- not a predecessor a successor to his his work. Thing is, in a later episode of Voyager, Janeway will flat out state that she has no knowledge of any other people being lost, especially in this area, which is fun- doubly funny because not only does it contradict what Sisko just said, but it contradicts uh, the two parter. Uh, Oh, gosh, I can't think of the name of it. Mm, With the rogue captain and the aliens being sacrificed, you know, that one. can't, I can't think of the name of it right now. Anyways, (laughs) it just amuses me. Although, of course, I'm sure some people will use this as an excuse to say I hate Voyager because for some reason uh, the internet seems to insist on telling me what my opinion is. But I digress. For the record, I like Voyager. Now, right at the beginning, we have Kira and Dax just kind of chatting. Now, at first, the scene just kind of made me go, really? Because they're chatting about dating preferences, basically. What I do kind of find interesting is that neither one of them is portrayed as absolutely correct. Dax's opinion is that Kira is too superficial, and Kira's opinion is that Dax is too loose. And yet both of them clearly show that the other's opinion is actually inaccurate. In fact, they could probably have continued this discussion and reached some sort of consensus, if not for the unfortunate inference of the ship blowing up. But I bring this up for only one reason. The thing that made me kind of be willing to accept this is this is the point. This is probably some of the most mundane, everyday crap that we've ever seen on DS9. They're literally talking about shipping routes, And who can go which way and who can dock when, you know, extremely boring, mundane stuff. And dating preferences, which is a very boring, more ordinary, normal thing. I don't mean that as a bad thing. My point is, this is. (sighs) I might be giving the episodes too much credit, but considering this is DS9 and considering the writers involved in these episodes, I don't think that's true. What I'm seeing here is a literal representation of the difference between those who live in relative comfort, and those who don't. For them, it is completely ordinary and normal to have their problem of the week be something like, who do I date? Instead of, do I eat? Do I have to leave my home? Will I have to fight strangers? Right? It's that difference of perspective, and the fact that Kira is one of them helps so much. Kira actually gets some good screen time in this episode, not a lot of it, But what she has is good because she shines a a very strong light on that variance, uh, the variance of perspective, the variance of being different, of, of having to deal with this kind of everyday horrible garbage and of not having to deal with that kind of horrible everyday garbage. And I don't know, maybe I'm just impacted by this a bit more because I have been on both sides of that line in my real life. Right now, my worst problem in a day is you know whether or not what I'm going to eat and, and you know, when I'm going to get my exercise in and how how I'm going to get my recordings done, as opposed to previous times in my life where I've had to worry if I will eat and will I be able to find a place to sleep where people won't kick me out of it. Right? You know I've I've been there. I've been there. So has Kira, which again I like that that presentation. So then Hudson shows up. Now Hudson, I have a really weird opinion on. Uh, The actor that plays him is good stuff, but the thing is, he feels bland. And I hate saying that because it feels like half of him is bland and half of him is not. Did I mention David Livingston uh, directed this episode? You can kind of tell because it's got his fingerprints all over it. And he's probably one of my favorite Star Trek directors overall, right up there with Jonathan Frakes. Um, He does some good stuff. Jonathan Frakes, LeVar Burton. David Livingston, they're all pretty high up on the list for me. Um, I mentioned that because I feel like Hudson didn't know what to do with his role when he was being the revolutionary. But when he dropped that for a second and just kind of start chatting with Cisco about the past or about what they've gone through or about, you know, how, how things are going, how's Jake, all of the sudden, that, that kind of stiff awkwardness of his performance is Gone. And there's just suddenly some very great natural chemistry between him and Avery Brooks. It's kind of weird because most of those transitions happen like that. Like they go from talking about the war and then they start talking about, you know, some, some German festival they had in New Berlin, right? And just the shift is is strange. I'm not sure why it happened, because it's it could be argued to be happening in character. It could be argued that Hudson is so unhappy and displeased with the way things are going since he functionally founded the maquis spoiler alert um that he that he just doesn't quite know how to keep up that facade and he only starts to mellow out and relax and be more natural when he's talking to the human being you know benjamin cisco instead of commander cisco i don't know food for thought He does share some interesting insights. So, unfortunately, we actually only have bits and pieces, I've talked about this before, about the Cardassian conflict. Uh, Even to this day, they've never gone back and given us a cohesive this-is-exactly-what-happened timeline of the Cardassian. I say conflict because it was a series of wars that just kind of kept going for a while there until finally they hammered out a treaty and then another treaty and established the DMZ and blah, blah, blah. And most, what's funny about the Cardassian conflict, it was introduced uh, whole cloth into TNG. I'll talk about that when we get there. Um, I don't remember the exact episode, but I I know The Wounded was one of the earlier ones. It might have been the first one. Forgive me for not remembering off the top of my head. Either way, they introduced that kind of like they did the Klingons back in TOS. Like, here's this brand new race that you've never heard of but in character we've had interactions with for a while. We've just never referenced them before because they were just invented. It's a unique way of doing things and can fall on its face, but I think they worked the Cardassians very well into Star Trek. And to be blunt, I think that's mostly on the strength of DS9. Not that TNG didn't do good stuff with them. You know, Chain of Command comes to mind immediately. But anyways, I mention this because we learn a few more details about the specifics of the Cardassian conflicts. And while I'm not going to go over some of those individual specifics, some of the the, the overall impression that is left with, and this is reinforced both by Hudson and Dukat, is that the Cardassians won so much in the peace that they have every interest in maintaining that peace because it's so valuable to them. It's so beneficial to them. They would literally lose more losing the peace than maintaining it because the Federation's policy was one of appeasement. We actually saw this in the previously mentioned The Wounded. Picard, despite knowing the truth of the situation and despite understanding the complexity of what was going on, decided to hide the information about what the Cardassians were doing and quite literally appeasing them in the matter in an effort to preserve the treaty. Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. That is a judgment call. And there's too many variables to clearly and demonstrably say, this is correct and this is incorrect in this kind of a situation. But there is no denying that the Federation's approach was very clearly one of, please no, please no war, please no war. God, here, we'll give you this, we'll give you this, we'll give you that. Come on. Now, I don't mean the individual uh, negotiators, obviously, but I have no doubt whatsoever that that was the Federation's overall policy. And really, that makes perfect sense. Though I personally disagree with it massively, the Federation's policy up to mm, about a year or two from now was to bend over backwards as hard as possible to please everyone else. Now, the reason I disagree with that is because I feel like the Federation takes it to an extreme. And I tend to be against extremes. I think that there needs to be a degree of moderation, and a degree of approaching each situation as its own separate thing. Sure, use other situations, other circumstances, other points of information to help judge how to get through this specific situation. But don't just write a line and say, it must always be above or below this. I don't agree with that philosophically. Which brings me to the Federation. Like it or not, the Federation have been the peacenicks up until and including now. They want this peace. They want to go back to just being themselves and their own thing, and not fighting anyone on a large scale. The Federation at this point in time has had peace for... I don't remember how long. It's been a while. I I believe the Cardassian Conflict... Oh no, actually, I think the Zinkethi Conflict would be the most recent one until now at this point, which would be about that decade earlier. And then we had the Cardassian Conflict, and before that uh, we had a nice big gap back to the Romulan Conflicts, but Aside from those, I know this is going to sound weird, but aside from those minor influences, the Federation has been at peace for about 80 years. You know, the predominant uh, portion of that time, the Federation has been enjoying this peace. And you get this really strong impression. This is just my opinion, but I get this very strong impression that the Federation really doesn't want to let go of that golden age. I've talked before about how I believe that the, um, the TNG up to a certain event uh, era, you know, that, that, that gap of time, basically, you know, from the Zincathie, from the Cardassian stuff, up to uh, Season 4 TNG, basically, was the Winds of Change era for Star Trek. You know, everything was new and exciting, and we don't have to worry about the enemies anymore, and there's, we, we're making peace bit by bit with all the people around us, and, we, you know, we're not at war with the Klingons, we've reached an understanding with them, and, you know, blah, 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 right? And then all of that changed with, and I, I mean, this isn't a spoiler at this point, all of that changed with the Borg. The Borg suddenly, sh- basically smacked the Federation in the face. And while that could have been a wake-up call, it is actually my opinion that it was kind of the opposite. That the Borg scared the Federation so hard, so much, so badly, that they withdrew even more into themselves, metaphorically speaking. Being willing to accept... Uh, provisions or provisos or peace treaties or infringements upon themselves or their people far more than they otherwise would, because good God, we don't want to go through that again. It probably doesn't help that they lost an entire fleet at Wolf 359. And given what we know about the, the Starfleet's operations at that time, that might have not just been one fleet, that might have been an entire battle group. Yeah. (laughs) Obviously, later on, we'll find, you know, during later events, we'll see that the Starfleet will field much larger fleets. But that is in direct reaction to other events, and in fact is also partially spurned by the destruction at Wall 359. Now I don't want to get too much into the Borg stuff here, but I say all of this because I think it's relevant to really establish the Cardassian mindset here. And bring up the obvious question of why the Cardassians are totally okay with performing terrorism on the colonists. Because if the Cardassians were to do anything overt or obvious, they might risk losing that peace treaty. The Federation would be willing to bend over relatively minor infractions. But if they do it just right, if they provoke the colonists into defending themselves and slowly either... like This is basically a win-win for the Cardis here, okay? The Cardassians' t- terror campaign. I mean, I, th- I think I've made my point that this is clearly a textbook example of terrorism. They produce their terrorism campaign on the colonists. In so doing, one of several things is going to happen, or some combination thereof. Colonists are going to die, removing them from the equation. Colonists are going to leave in frustration, making, which is a win for the Cardassians because they can then claim the territory. Um, or the colonists can try to defend themselves, which the Cardassians can then openly defend themselves back against them while maintaining the high ground and the Cardassians know that the federation will be so desperate for that peace treaty and this proves to be true in the next episode that they are willing to go against basically their own former citizens or their own citizens in some cases because those citizens have technically violated the terms of this agreement and this treaty by being the ones to defend themselves against a not-overt attack attempt through the terrorism of the Cardassians. I hope I'm explaining this right, because I'm doing a terrible job, I feel like. Either way, the Cardassians win. The only thing that could really push back against them is if some other major power got involved, one who was, and I'm going to say this as bluntly as I can, not as weak-kneed as the Federation, or if the Maquis got a sufficient amount of support in terms of personnel, material, and and territory and and resources in order to actually form a true nation and really make an actual push against the Cardassian Union. And even that, that's not super likely. Not unless the Cardassian military has something else to deal with. So, now that I'm done talking about that mess... We're not even really done. It's just I'm saving some of that for next episode. Uh, I like Sakona, the Vulcan. She's one of the better examples of guest star Vulcans in this series, in my opinion. Like we, I, I've talked so many times about good Vulcans versus bad Vulcans. She, I think, does a good job of portraying a, a pretty good Vulcan. I also like the fact that she's part of the Maquis. Because, as weird as this is probably going to sound, it makes perfect sense to me to logically look at the situation and deduce that this is the only possible path going forward. Functionally, the Cardassians have cornered the Maquis. What are their options? Option 1, die. Option 2, leave. Option 3, appeal to the Federation for help. And Option 4, fight back. There really aren't a lot of other options here. So, Dying is obviously off the list, and leaving is off the list. I'll talk about that in a second. So that only leaves appealing to the Federation or fighting back. Now, understanding how the Federation works and everything I just said, logically, do you think that it is the correct move, not the right move, but the correct move, to appeal to the Federation government for assistance in this matter while the terrorism attacks of the Cardassians are actively happening? Or do you think it is more logical to take action immediately for the purpose of saving as many lives as possible and attempting to discourage further Cardassian subversive action. Now, maybe this is just me, but e- if I was to remove emotion from the equation, which, which really muddles this situation, let me tell you, uh, I would still logically arrive at the same conclusion, that defense is what should happen here. And I also have to admit, Quark and Sikona's uh, interactions are actually great. It's a little weird to see this right after profit and loss. Basically, I mean, it's it's two, been two episodes, but what I like about it is not the fact that he's trying to get in her pants. I like how he's so. Clean. I like how he's quark. You know, I, I've said this so many times. One of the best things is one of his best abilities that he can hit on cooldown over here is that he can just dynamically manage to talk his way and adaptively think his way through a conversation. He manages to. He slips up a few times, but for the most part, he manages to talk circles around Sukona, logically, even, managing to basically play the game, which, again, is something Quirk is very good at. Again, see profit and loss. I also like how he... She she nails it. Credit to the actress. I know she also plays... Um, I don't remember the designation. One of the, the free Borg drones over in Voyager. She does a good job there, too. Um, but she does a good job of portraying, you know, a Vulcan rather than being completely emotionless, just being very self-controlled. But she also, uh, sorry, he, Quark, I love how he's completely on top of the conversation and basically maneuvers her into about as good of a position as he could reasonably assume. And then she finally admits what she wants. And that's when all he just, whoa, 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 wait, you you, you are—you want weapons? <laughs> like you could just see the facade just absolutely fall off. Like if you could picture Quark literally. Here, let me pull up one of my notes. Literally wearing this mask, and then in the middle of 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 the you know I these guns. And he just he just literally drops the mask. Like what? You, you're you're a gun runner. I okay 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 sure sure yeah okay I can deal with that. Let me think about it. <laughs> um. So. I don't have much to say about Patrick Samuel's confession. It's so fake. And that's funny to me because we, the audience, know he's guilty. But it's important that it's fake. Let me explain. We, the audience, are treated to a lot of actual information in this episode and the next one. So we know a lot of what both sides are doing. However, the characters in character are being fed a lot of misinformation from basically all sides simultaneously. And I kind of like that. It adds to the dilemma. In video gaming, in gaming in general, actually, there's a term called total information. Now, there's actually layers and shadings to this. But total information refers to the fact that you know what is on the board, so to speak. What can happen, where it's going to happen, where they're going to attack, what they can attack, all that kind of thing. You can deduce, based on what you see on the board, everything that it is possible for your opponent to do. Chess is a game of total information. You know everything that can happen on that chessboard just by looking at it. But real life's a lot more complicated than that. And so most of the people in charge, Cisco being the big one, has to make choices without knowing. If he knew with absolute certainty that Samuels was behind it, that would change a lot of his position. If he knew for total certainty that the Cardassians were advancing this, this uh, terrorism campaign then that would change his position. But he doesn't know these things. And this information is kept from him. This is why I point out the Samuel's Confession, because it's so obvious it's faked, even though he did it. He's literally reading. Like, I mean, he's doing what I'm doing right now. He just occasionally looks down. I, I'm sorry, I'm doing it more demonstrably. But, you know, he looks down like this every now and again. He's reading straight off of a script. The only thing he says that sounds genuine is, I'm sorry, right at the end. Oh, and then he committed suicide. And you know the funny thing? Everyone involved agrees that the suicide wasn't genuine. Everyone does. Hudson doesn't think it happened. Cisco doesn't think it happened. Dukat doesn't think it happened. The colonists don't think it happened. I'll discuss a little bit more about that in a second. It's just an interesting situation. So, there's this great scene where Kira rages at Cisco. She talks about how you know, they don't have a choice. They were abandoned. And I know what it's like to have to live with the Cardassians. And they're never going to. Aren't ar- ar- they part of the deal? And blah, 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 blah. And Sisko is the angriest I have ever seen him. Now, I believe we will see him angrier after this from memory. But up till this point in time, Sisko has been fairly calm and collected. And even when he's angry, he comes across as chilly. Here, he is just barely restrained. I love Avery Brooks' acting; I really do. You could tell he is on the verge of physically exploding, you know, as if if that was possible. If his cannon, had, if his chest had been a cannon, he would have shot his heart upon it. You know, that's that's the situation. He's just shuddering there, and it gets to the point where he he starts actually interrupting Kira and anticipating her questions and her statements because he is so angry. He is barely restraining himself, and he finally gets to the point where he can't even trust himself to speak anymore. And he actually just <laughs> slams down on the, co- the the door and then turns around and walks away like, out. he doesn't say anything because he can't trust himself to talk. And it's so obvious why Cisco is so angry. Because he doesn't know what's going on. This is a dilemma. Something DS9 in general, excuse me, DS9 in specific, and Star Trek in general, are very good at. Every now and again, Star Trek likes to say, hey, this is right and this is wrong. And I hate it when Star Trek, or anything, does that. But what I love is when Star Trek says, here's a situation, and we have to decide what the dilemma is and and how to perceive it and how to dissolve it and what is correct or incorrect or right or wrong. Because functionally speaking, there is no real right answer to this whole situation unless you presume war. Now. I'm going to go and give my opinion on this, and it's going to be a pretty unpopular one. But I'm going to be honest. I'm always trying to be honest with you guys. I think war is the correct situation here. I think the Federation should leverage its alliance with the Klingons to form a strong military front against the Cardassians, and in so doing, force the Cardassians back and readjust the peace treaty to more favorable terms. In other words, I don't think they should wage a war of conquest or destruction. I think they should wage a political war, something the Federation should be very good at doing. We will find out more of the terms of this peace treaty in the future. It's garbage. It's basically the Cardassians get whatever they want, and the Federation gets nothing except for we don't have to fight anymore. That's functionally it. Um, There's, I mean, there's some little differences, but you get the point being able to actually accept these people back into the Federation fold may or may not be something they accept. But if nothing else, it would provide far more political firepower to literally defend them, especially in the wake of terrorist attacks. Remember, the only thing the Federation's doing right now about the Demilitarized Zone is sending basically one guy, whatever his office is, that's Hudson, in order to be the attaché to the entire region. We don't even know how large it is, right? One guy and his office. <laughs> By all accounts, he doesn't even have a ship. Like, not a real ship. He, he's got shuttles and whatnot. <laughs> but, if, but but that's because they're not part of the Federation. They basically seceded. This is the next thing I want to talk about, so I'm kind of segueing into here. Um, they wanted to stay in their land, their land so they accepted th- leaving the Federation. Now, I don't want to spoil too much. I'm just going to say I agree with Eddington about this. The, you know, some of you know what I'm talking about. It's all I'm going to say about that right now. But they accepted leaving. But if we were to go to war with the Cardassian Union, force them from a position of strength into a better situation, reaccept these people as Federation citizens, actually have Federation... Patrols and ships and supply convoys and medical assistance and investiga- investigative material, we might be able to actually stop all this crap. But the interesting thing is, that brings me to the point I've been segueing to the leaving the Federation, refusing to leave problem. Now, I am not the kind of person to comment on this i am the kind of person who doesn't really have a lot of attachment to terrain um i don't mean that in a negative way i understand intellectually that there are many people who who have a great deal of investment in what they call home um i'm i'm saying this wrong i i have a great deal of investment in home too but for me my home goes with me where i am that is my home basically i mean i've moved like 30 times in my life you know i don't really have any particular like I said, terrain investment. But I know a lot of people do. I understand, well, I don't understand it. I don't, I'll be honest. But I intellectually cognate that people think that way. So I can intellectually comprehend that these people do not want to leave their homes that they have settled as a consequence of this peace treaty. But I do have to question, you know, if, if I was a Federation d- ambassador or whatever, I, I feel like going to these colonists and be like, you want to stay here because this is your home. Now, I want to ask you, bluntly, you know this means you'll be leaving the Federation and all that that means, and that's fine, but that also means the Cardassians can do whatever they want to you. So I want to ask you, honestly, is it worth it to you to stay here <laughs> in what is effectively no man's land and have whatever horrible stuff happens to you or your family without protection or aid or support, or is it more worth it to you for us to relocate you to somewhere else? This is Star Trek, not real life. We have tons of other territory, planets, homes that people can be relocated to. Tons! This... Star Trek has only explored, like, what is it, 13% of the galaxy, and they still have trillions of planets and systems which are habitable. And those which aren't, we have terraforming technology, which is only getting better as the show goes on. By the time we get to STO, we'll have the frickin' uh, Lucari... <laughs> to terraforming tech, which will be even better. But I'm getting off topic. My point is, it's one of the reasons I call this a dilemma because I cannot say with absolute certainty that the colonists are 100% victims or 100% innocent. Now, don't mistake me. I'm still more on their side than I am the Cardassians. But it is worth noting in the hard, re- harsh realities of reality these people chose to stay behind. These people left the Federation, by choice, decided to stay in a known dangerous area, and that was their choice. I don't want to punish them for their choice, but at the same time, they had to have known walking into that some of the consequences. <sighs> I don't know. This, this is why I say this is a very complicated situation and a dilemma. Because while well, the Cardassians are pretty clearly in the wrong, so is basically everyone else to some extent or another. There's also one other point I want to bring up, and this is the final point I want to mention here. Oh, actually, really quick thing. You notice how Odo is super fascist? Just nice little tidbit there. Um, Dukat, I haven't even really mentioned Dukat yet. He's the last thing I want to talk about. Ducat and Cisco are brilliant together. They only really have, functionally, the two scenes together. Three. Three scenes together. I'm not counting the fourth, because that's like a whole bunch of people in the same room scene. But they have like three scenes together. And they're all gold. <laughs> As ever. Um, Oh my god. Avery Brooks and... Uh, Mark Alemo. There we go. I know if I just thought about it for a second. I'm so bad with names. Mark Alemo and Avery Brooks are just amazing together. This will continue into the future as well. And Mark Alemo manages to add so much charisma, strength, and, and oomph behind his lines and his presentation. I love how we can't decide how much of what he says is actually true or not. Now, that being stated based on partially out-of-character information and partially in-character information, and I've kind of already given my opinion on this, the whole Mark Alemo presenting his character, writers disagreeing on his character thing, I think that at least most of what he says in this episode is actually true. That he will withhold information, but he does not stoop to lying. Now, that is still a form of deception, but I'm not saying this to venerate him or make him better. What I'm saying this is that what he tells us is probably the truth. Which brings up the wonderfully interesting question, why are the Cardassians so divided on their approach to the situation? Now, we will discuss this more in the future as it comes more up, but if what Dukat is telling us is the truth, then there are some Cardassians who are pushing this terrorist campaign thing, and some who see it as foolish and wasteful. I love the fact that Dukat and Sisko are functionally allies here, for completely different reasons. I mentioned the suicide thing earlier. That's probably my favorite example of this. Cisco is disgusted and angry about the suicide because a man died, possibly a good man, who may or may not have done it. He doesn't know. And even if he did do it, they, they have other ways to deal with it, rather than just faking his death. Ducat is angry and disgusted by it because, well, that's throwing away a very powerful and potential resource. It's foolish. It's short-sighted. And I love that we see... This is actually probably the second time this has really happened, but not the for the last time. Ducat is actually... His goals align with the good guys of the show for completely different reasons. I love that dynamic. It's part of what makes Ducat so interesting to me, is that he is a villain who is complicated enough to be both good and bad, if you will, at the same time. In fact, I would argue both definitions barely apply to him. He has his own motivations, and he is very fluid in how he is willing to approach those motivations. And if they align with the good guys, so to speak, he has absolutely no hesitation or or anything in pragmatically saying, okay, let's work together. The aid he gives Cisco, I think, is my opinion, is genuine in this episode. And I do think he legitimately wants to preserve the peace and deal with this situation. Shut down the Maquis and shut down the terrorist attacks. Why? Because he believes that they are getting the most out of this treaty. Ducat has the opinion that I gave right at the beginning. And it's exactly what Hudson told Cisco. The Cardassians won that war. Yeah, the Cardassians... Beat the Federation. They had a higher war score, and they got more out of that peace treaty. They want to preserve that. Ducat wants to preserve that. They're, they already won. They're doing it. They're winning. Why are you risking it with all this stupid crap? Right? I also love that there's this one little tidbit of information. I mentioned that we know a lot more than the characters do. But there is one interesting piece of information we're not sure of as of this episode, and that is whether or not the Bachnor was carrying weapons. Now, that is a very important question because it throws everything into different perspective depending on if it is true or not. Ducat swears it is not true on the lives of his seven children. And I believe that he believes he's telling the truth about that. But we've also seen that High Command and the Cardassian government are more than willing and capable of lying to Dukat personally. They've done it more than once before. Already, it's like halfway through Season 2, they've already lied to him more than once, kept him in the dark on things. Uh, in fact, I believe three times total, now that I'm thinking about it. But that the reason I say that changes everything, if they destroyed a civilian freighter, then that's an act of terrorism. If they destroyed a civilian freighter that was being part of smuggling weapons and and damaging goods into the demilitarized mil- zone in order to try and wage this terrorist campaign, that is defending themselves. And you can see why that shift in perspective, which way the shadow goes on the wall, is pretty significant and has a pretty big impact on the morality of the situation, which is probably one of the biggest reasons why that particular piece of information is left out of the equation and we don't know because otherwise we would just have an honest answer to this wouldn't we i really like this episode if it's not obvious there's a lot to think about and we're finally getting into what i consider to be the meat of ds9 while there's been good episodes i mean duet right but while there's been good episodes it is my opinion this is when ds9 has finally begun to find itself with complex situations heavy character-centric events and really not holding back when it comes to beating the audience over the head with the bat of particular issues or consequences. I hope you've enjoyed. We'll cover part two next week.